This is A Drink With A Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I am Seth with a new mic. <laughs> Happy New Year, Seth. How Happy were your new- holidays? Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. My holidays were phenomenal, including and up because of, in no small part, um, the fact that I got a new microphone. Seth with new mic. That's my name today. We were having some significant issues in the last couple, maybe even handful of episodes um, because I was tinkering around with this wretched microphone (laughs) and I have replaced it and I'm very hopeful that this fixes the problem. It's like you're a real podcaster. (laughs) <laughs> well, some might say, some yeah. might say, I mean, it was an experimental before, but then in the new year, it's just like, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. You sound So great. it was a good holiday. It was good. a good holiday with a new microphone. Merry Christmas <laughs> to me. How was your holiday uh, time? It was delightful to you. Yeah. We stayed at home, which is just how I like it. There are some years we go to Oregon, but it's very, very rare. Uh, the reason is simply because... It's lovely there in the holiday mm. season with snow and stuff. But for the most part, I like being at home. I like having our yeah. own living room and our own tree and yep. our own things. And kids seem to like that too. Um, so it's not just a COVID thing. It's a like we want to be home thing. So yeah, it was great. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. We decided years ago always to stay home mm-hmm. because we have kids to raise and yeah. we want them to have memories of being at home. It's a big that's deal. Right. So it is a big deal. We do. We we stay home. We drink Christmas coffee. Um, we drink eggnog. And that leads me to the question hmm. that we always ask each other, which is, what are you drinking today? Um, I am drinking black coffee that I actually got Kyle for Christmas. It's not really the bag of beans I got him. It's a six-month coffee subscription from a Ooh. place local to us, Atlas Coffee Club. Mm-hmm. Not a sponsor, but if they want to, they can. Mm-hmm. Um, Come on, where- Atlas. They send you a bag of beans a month and they just give you info about where it's from and who grew it and blah, blah, blah. And of course, month one was Ethiopia, which I really love. And it's not Yurgishev. It's another type. And I can't remember the type, but it's really good. So hmm. it's what are it's the nice. uh, what are the tasting notes? Uh, a tiny bit of chocolate, but not really. It's a, just a nice, light, bright, uh, maybe a little cinnamony. Hmm. Probably kind of that, not blueberry Spicy. though, which is Yurgachev. But yeah, it's yeah, a bit of a yeah. spice. But I like it. It's, yeah. it's up my the, alley. The best, the best Yurgachevs are like getting punched in the face with blueberries. Right, right. Have you ever had? By the way, have you ever had Yurgachev with blueberry pie? No, but that sounds perfect. It's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. It's amazing. Truly, Very everyone cool. should do it at least once in their life before they die. <laughs> okay. Well, on that pleasant note, uh, Seth, what are you drinking? Just crappy black coffee. I won't even say the brand again. I, mm. I feel really bad about drinking. The, it's a big box corporate brand that tastes essentially like dirt and minerals with an aftertaste of coffee. Does it rhyme with Schmarbucks? Because sometimes that's how it, I feel. Like- it may or may not. Okay. It may or may not taste like some burnt Schmarbucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it always tastes burnt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Why is that? Why can't they not burn their coffee? 
Right. I know. I was going to say it's probably because they burn their coffee, but I don't know how how to tell them to not to. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry know. to all the listeners out there who love them some of the Smarf Bucks. <laughs> um, if you like your coffee burn, that's great. It's the coffee for you. If you don't mm-hmm. like your coffee burn, then I s- suspect that you should probably shop <laughs> at your local coffee purveyor and or, um, you know, Locate Dave and Karen's coffee shop and buy some coffee from them. Locate your own Dave and Karen, which is what we're going to talk about, not in this episode, mm. but the next. But you know yeah, what? That is true. I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you there. So, but Seth, before we started a new year, you had this audacious idea that you ran by me about us each creating some challenges for ourselves, like six month, first of the year challenges. I love the idea. I spent the holidays thinking about it because I really wanted to do what you already knew you were going to do, but I couldn't quite wrap my brain around it. We'll get into mine next week, but we wanted to start the new year off talking about what your big hairy challenge is because we think more of us should all do this. So why don't you uh, start us off with your thoughts? Yeah. So my my challenge, the challenge to myself, it's not a challenge to everyone out there, but my challenge to myself was to get off of social media for six months. And it wasn't just social media. It's going to, it's going to come down as a social media challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the truth is it's, it's social media and all algorithmically curated news. Now this is a little bit of a challenge because I got to be honest, like there is, some component of being on YouTube. So I I don't consider YouTube as a social media platform for a variety of reasons. Um, but there's going to be some component when I log on to social media because of my algorithms that news is going to pop up. And so one of the things that I have sort of intentionally done is not clicked on any news I see on YouTube, on the YouTubes. Mm-hmm. And there's some reasons why I did not count social media as YouTube. I know this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but I want to sort of outline the parameters around what I mean as social media. Yeah. Uh, w- one of those things is because I break stuff a lot and have to figure out how to fix it. <laughs> right. There's and a practical so, component to YouTube. Yeah. So you got to use YouTube. The other thing is um, I'm doing some reading challenges this year in my own personal life. And I want to share that with listeners, readers. Um, and, and honestly, writing reviews of books just takes a long time when I could sit down and press record on a camera and capture four reviews in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so there's a practical component of just like even sharing what I'm reading. I don't know that I'm going to do that, but I wanted to leave the opportunity open to do that. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm not really counting YouTube as social media, although I do realize that it is a time suck for most people. So for me, social media includes... Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, which again, we've talked about. I love Instagram. I don't find it addictive. I don't get into comparison games, but I thought it was a little bit unfair to say I'm going off social media and then stay on Instagram. So any of the big three social media platforms, Mm -hmm. I'm off. And I would agree with you that YouTube is not social media simply. Well, it has social media components, just like you said, but to me, it falls more in the line along the lines of podcasting because it's people creating yeah. things. So yeah. a YouTube sh- channel or a show is like a podcast or podcast episode. So, yeah. yeah. And it's not subject to the same notions of doom scrolling or collective outrage or selective outrage. Um, all those things are there. You can find them. Um, but it's not going to be the typical thing that you find as you sort of look for the next video to watch. Now it is algorithmically driven 
And so it will influence and bias and move your opinions around if you're not careful. But I think if you know that and you you mm-hmm. you tend to be aware of that and and again, don't click on algorithmically generated news, I think yeah. you can avoid, you know, the worst of YouTube. You can also uh, add Chrome extensions to take that off. I I used Ooh. one for a while. Um, I want to put it back on. Uh, after watching that one documentary that came out last year, it's the I forget the one, the one with Tristan Harris. You know the one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, the Social Dilemma. That one, yeah. Um, th- th- a guy on there talked about a like he was a former YouTube employee, and then he created a a, a extension to truncate the very thing he created. Um, yeah. A- after yeah. he left, so yeah. Anyway. Can we we should drop some links in for people yeah. to one watch the video the 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 social dilemma but also for the extensions that you're talking about. Yep, absolutely. I'll do that. Cool. Yeah, so here was the fascinating thing, uh Tish. I ironically um announced my departure from social media on social media cuz you know, who doesn't love some good irony? And the response was insane. Mm-hmm. Now I do want to get into like the why behind this. Yeah. Um, but but before I even get to the why, let's start with like the it wasn't even like I don't know, just the res- just the response to it. It wasn't pushback. It, it it I mean there was some gentle pushback, but it was predominantly uh I wish I could do that. Yeah. I mean, if I heard that once, I heard that over and over again. Yep. Man, I wish I could do this. And sometimes it was, I wish I could do this, but I am in X, Y, and Z business and X, Y, and Z business requires me to be here. Now, yeah. I will be honest. I think a lot of that is feigned. I don't think that that's always true. Um, there are instances where that is true though. And and some very good people responded. I'm like, yep, yeah, no, you kind of have to be on social media. I totally get it. Um, so there was some of that, but the larger portion of people said things like, I'd really like to do that, man. I wish I could do that, but I just can't cause I'm addicted. Mm-hmm. And that was <laughs> super surprising because would you ever say, man, I really wish I could get off heroin, but I just can't cause I'm addicted. Right. Right. You would never do that. Right. And so it yeah. was super fascinating to hear that. The other thing that I heard a lot, so that was, that was like sort of one one uh, group of people who were saying like, I wish I could, uh, could get off, but I can't because either a business or be addicted. The other thing that I um, heard an awful lot was, you know, this is the place where I go to find connection. Right. And that was the moment when I was like, Oh, wait a second. We we've actually created something that is a substitution for the real and that is super problematic um and so those were kind of the two rationales that i heard sort of undergirding why people won't get off of social media or can't get off social media Mm -hmm. um and so i'd love to talk about those a little bit today in addition to just why i decided to do it in the first place yeah i think this is a topic on so many people's minds especially this time of year we're all kind of doing some form of like fasting or purging or just at least hankering for it. And 
the the pull of social media, we kind of cave into it over the holidays, I find more than other times because yeah. we've got our schedules are different, our we, we've got more downtime. We we just put less it's kind of the the same way we eat more sugar over the holidays than yeah. we normally do. So I think people are really feeling the, you know, the aftermath, the sugar crash equivalent of social media and, and really craving getting off. But yes, I have heard those excuse I I, I, my, my shortcut is to call them excuses. I'm going to call them yeah. reasons because some of them yeah. are legit reasons, but yes, Absolutely. I think, I think the idea that we have to be on, I really want to unpack that because you and I have already talked about this before. I think that's largely um, exacerbated by those who maybe benefit from a few people being yes. on more than is necessary. But yes. um, there are a few people, you know, I'm thinking of like social media managers for brands, you know, that that's literally their job description. But even still, Cal Newport and types like him have addressed this issue of how when you have to, you can still do it in a much, much healthier way than yeah. it, we, we just assume to be. But yeah, all the things are exactly spot on, especially that third point you mentioned about um, it's where I connect with people. I wrote yeah. a piece about that in my newsletter a month ago, got a tiny bit of pushback. Um, and the tiny was in comparison to the onslaught of people who were yes and amening what I said. And basically, yeah. it was, I was making the case that online communities are actually a facade of the real thing. Um, yeah. And so you see this uptick in people talking about communities and membership online. Um, and that's all well and good so long as it it encourages your actual offline community, as long as it makes you a better member of your real life. But when it starts replacing it, that's when it becomes a problem. And there are short-term times when that's necessary, like initial lockdowns, perhaps. But then we get into this habit. And before we know it, like, when was the last time we actually went to in-person church because we're just streaming? When was the last time we actually got coffee with a friend, even as safely as we could. And um, we'll get into more of that maybe next week in mind. But I think social media addiction fuels that that need. Because here's the thing. we That's a God-given need for us to be to yeah. belong somewhere, mm -hmm. to, to know others, and to be known. And it just gives us just enough of that hit to make us think we're, we're getting our community needs mm -hmm. met, but we're not. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it comes along with so much garbage and right. baggage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for instance, like when did I start noodling around with the idea? Okay, well, we all know because everyone was here when I did it last year. Um, kind of towards the end of the year, I took a one month break from social media. Yeah. I don't really remember what month that was. It may have been September or October, but it was leading up to um it was leading up to actually a really busy season of work for me where I was in Colorado. I was trying this case and I was, you know, busy in a, essentially in a dungeon, you know, by night in a windowless courtroom by day. It was awful. Um, and so I just, I had no desire to get on social media. And, and when I came back to social media, so what was a one month fast sort of functionally turned into a couple months, maybe three months. And when I came back, Beth Moore was trending. <laughs> she was trending Beth Moore. Yeah. Now listen. I was excited, right? Because you know, I'm Catholic. Beth Moore's not Catholic. Uh she's Baptist, but I used to be Baptist and I was excited because you know, she's she teaches Bible. She's a good teacher. Uh she's uh witty sometimes, humorous on occasion. Yeah. She's yeah. very pointed. 
about everything that she says. And so when she's trending, I'm thinking, oh, great. Something really great has happened for Beth Moore to be trending. Way to go, Beth Moore. Um, and so then I was like, I wonder what it was. And then I started like sort of going down the tweet bunny trail, you know, that thing where you just <laughs> kind of like go from one tweet to the next tweet. And I realized that she was trending um, because evidently, I don't know if you knew this, but Beth Moore's the devil. Did you know this? I, I've heard that from time to time. Every couple of weeks, Twitter lets me know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's so, so evidently she is the devil and um, <laughs> she has become or she is worshiping in a liturgical tradition. I'll just say that. It's not my yeah. place to really out, put more mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> air underneath this thing. Yeah. And somebody uh, sort of attacked her, took some photos of her worshiping in her church yeah. and attacked her for being in this like you know, different tradition, this tradition, this tribe that was not their tradition or their tribe. Um, and so again, to your point of, of connection, not only is it a place of like feigned connection, um, but it's also a place where we get to value and judge other people's local connection based on what our idea of connection is, right? And yeah. so somebody was saying, because she's no longer in my group or my tribe, then she is, you know, a witch, she mm-hmm. looks like a duck. She floats like a duck. Right. You know, all the Monty Python things. Right. Um, and 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 attached the photographs of her worshiping in her church to prove it. Which is both and creepy was, and borderline illegal. Listen, yeah. let's be true. Uh, honest here. That was, and please don't censor this, Kyle, creepy as hell. Yeah. I mean, that was creepy. Yeah. Uh, even if that person didn't take the photos, somebody did. Mm-hmm. And then to sneak them out and to post them on the internet, come on, man. Like, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. um, so I saw that and then it wasn't just that, like that was bad enough. Right. Um, and that got me going enough. Like I was like, I was pretty pissed about it, but then I started seeing all these people like tweeting, like piling on, on either side, right? It's like everyone had to have an opinion. And the opinions kept rolling and rolling and rolling. And it was days, like Mm -hmm. two or three days this kept going on. I even tweeted an opinion on it, which I stand by. And yet I got rolled up into uh, this sort of tweet storm. Um, And it was really fascinating to me to watch it sort of unfold and then fizzle out. But when it fizzled out, it just rolled into the next big Twitter collective outrage. Right. Right? So like she went away, you know, she'll be the devil again, probably in February, but she went away for a little bit and there was another devil that kind of came up that everyone had to sort of attack. And, um, you know, maybe it was a conservative devil this time, not a liberal one, whatever those words even mean anymore. I don't think they mean much of anything on Twitter, but, um, and so again, there was this, this big collective outrage, this big collective push. Um, and so that's the thing that instigated, you know, this, this desire to step away and to see if I could kind of cleanse myself of social media for six months and see if, if there maybe wasn't a better way to curate uh, communities that support work without having to feel like I had to go to Twitter to do it. Now, one more thing about that. I announced my exodus from social media for six months and a person that I really uh, genuinely respect and, and think the world of texted me. Hmm. And uh, that person was 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 also sort of wrapped up in this, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, this Beth, Beth Moore tweet storm, and made some very good points, 
during the middle of it, but still was involved in the collective outrage and said to me, you know, I've tried to use social media differently, but every time I tweet something that I think is, is poignant or funny or just, you know, like everyday connective stuff, it's the connective tissue of life, you know, everyday mm-hmm. stuff. I get no likes. I get no responses. I get no mentions. Right. But then I can come, and he's a pastor, I can come with this like sort of pastoral take on this huge controversy of literally of the minute, not even of the day, but of the minute. And I can get retweeted a thousand times. Yeah. Um, and But there's no sticking engagement with it. You know, it just like happens for 24 hours or 48 hours and then everyone moves on. And then I try to be a normal person and nobody cares. Right. Um, and he said, so, so the the reward system for me jumping into the collective outrage is amped up. And the reward system for me just being like a normal person with a normally developed human soul is very low on social media. And so what happens, right? I exchange the real me for this version of the fake me um, that, that has these insightful takes on the controversy of the minute. And I thought, Wow, that that's that's everything that I need to know to back up my decision to to jump off for six months. It's almost like it's in the algorithm <laughs> that they need you to be yeah. outraged for the whole, the is. very structure to work. And and I've said this so many times the past few months. It's not a bug; it's a feature, right? Yeah, it's, it is. It's literally how Twitter works. It's how Instagram and Facebook work too. Even if that's not as much a problem for you, they. They rely so much on, if not outrage, some sort of shock or some yeah. sort of over the top something. Um, even if it's purported to be a, a positive thing, um, it does not value ordinariness. And we're not meant to live largely outside the ordinary. And so whenever it asks us to always be jumping from one thing to the next. You know, as soon as you post something, you think of the next thing to post. Um, if you depend on it for your work or for your well-being, it's going to always disappoint you because yeah. it, it just is asking, it asks us to not be human. Yeah. And you can only keep that up for so long. So, I'm curious, Seth, because one of the first reactions you and I get whenever we talk about anything, you know, because I I take a, a screen fast, so not just social media, but all sorts of internet uh, stuff um, every July. I've done it for about three years now. And every um, response I get usually is, well, I wish I could do that, followed by, um, what about your work as a writer? Like, what yeah. about your professional career, which really does, you know, play a role in this. So unpack yeah. for me a little bit of what your thoughts are about you as a writer and how this will play yeah. out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple things there and one of them just needs to be dealt with really honestly. And the really honest thing is, listen, I have a day job, right? The, the honest truth is, um, you know, I don't write 100% for a living anymore. And even when I did, which was, you know, for the last essentially five years, maybe three or four years, I took a break from practice of law for three or four years. Yeah. When I wrote full time, I was writing for other people. And so it didn't really matter what my opinions were. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, my words weren't hurting their words, so to speak. So I've always had like a side income that isn't dependent on social media. So yeah, 
as a preliminary matter, like let's just be honest. Like for me, it's easier for me to step away than some people like you and I know in your position who who mm-hmm. primarily rely on social media as a marketing tool. Well, I will say though, asterisk on that point, that changed for me two years ago because I, you know, most of my subscribers know I teach English. It's part time. So I I earn part time pay for my other gigs. So I still do rely on my work as a writer um, for our income. However, there was such a change in my mindset two years ago when I, it was more than two years ago now, but whenever I took on another job, that had nothing to do with the internet. And yeah. when Kyle went back to work, he really yeah. it had nothing to do with my work other than he he saw how burned out I was. He missed working. Yeah. And he wanted yeah. to go back to doing work that had nothing to do with um, my work. And that's a whole separate topic. But my point being, I not only think it's a more human way to live when you don't rely on your your influencer brand or your personhood, um, that you are portraying on the internet to be your main source of revenue. I mean, a little bit of real talk. I find the people that don't have that to be more interesting. Like honestly, yeah. people yeah. are more interesting writers when they have something else going on in their life <laughs> besides yeah. besides writing or besides what they do online. You can only, I mean, it becomes a self, uh, what do you yeah. call that? Like it's an echo chamber sort of within your own life. Like yeah, if I find is. myself not knowing much of what I think or what I have to say, it's probably because I'm not living enough of just a real life and yeah. I need to get offline and go do that. So that's a side thought. Yeah. And even a lot of the people that you and I would be familiar with that are sort of in that self-help sort of space. So this would yeah. these would be the, the kinds of people that would be more reliant on the internet. There are tons of writers who are not. So I'm just going to call out this little group. Like, yeah. You know, Adam Grant or uh, Ryan Holiday or Cal Newport or any of these sort of self helpy gurus. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to them closely, they all have significant chunks of other business that take up their time. That's not just being yeah. important on the internet, right? <laughs> right. So you got you you got to also say like, hey, there are a lot of people out there who are writing tons of material and great stuff, who are, um, you know, engaged in real world activities. So, I mean, I think part of it is just to recognize that, hey, I can diversify my um, business, my income to the extent that like, if I don't want to be on the internet because it's bad for my soul, then I don't have to be. The second thing I would say to answer your original question, which is how, you know, what do you say to people who say, how can you continue to be uh, writing and not on the internet? Is this, it, you know, you and I both know in general market fiction, it's not a requirement that you be some talking head on the internet. Not yeah. for the most part. Now, there are some that that do and are. Stephen King's a great example of someone who is. Anthony yeah. Doerr is a great example of someone who is not, right? right? And so if you're good at your craft, like you don't necessarily have to be on the internet. Now, obviously connections and networks and those things help, but you don't you don't necessarily have to be on the internet. So that exists in that space. Um, in the self help space, as we've talked about, it's kind of the same to varying mm-hmm. degrees. People are on the internet. Cal Newport is not at all. Right. Um, now, again, he's also a professor and speaks and does these other things and doesn't have to be on the internet, right? So there's that. Right. Um, but in all of these other genres of writing, you know, it, it, there there is a path carved out to where you do not have to be you know, the sort of guru 
talking head on the on the socials uh, in order to be a, a successful writer. And to be a successful writer, by that I mean to be able to just say, "Hey, I have some work that I would like to get published, and somebody's going to buy it." Right? Yeah. Like a hundred people. If a hundred people buy your book, you get to write another book. Like that, you know, it's great. So I'm not talking about being like some world-renowned author, right? But so. Other people have carved out those paths in other industries. And so the question that I have for those who write in um, faith-based spaces, I'll just say, because this is trans- this transcends like Christian Twitter or Catholic, mm-hmm. you know, social media or whatever. I find this in most, face- most faith-based spaces. We are unreasonably reliant on social media as a marketing tool. And the publishers, sorry if you're listening, make us... And, and ask us to be unreasonably reliant on social yep. media, which is a thing that is detrimental for our souls. Yeah. And so uh, I have decided I may fail. This may be a miserable failure. I've been talking about this since the last time we were in Italy, and I had that journal that I had analog resistance written on, Yep. Um, and I still haven't done it. I, I have decided I got to figure out a different way. Mm-hmm. Like I need to figure out a way to sell enough copies of a book that a publisher will still say, Hey, keep writing books for me. Um, and I don't care if you're on Twitter. Yeah. And if I can't do that, then genuinely like, hear me, I'm not bullshitting here. Yeah. I, I don't want to write right. anymore. Yeah. Like if, if, if the cost, if the trade off here is to write, to be a writer, you have to be on social media, period, end of story. And I'm not saying I'm never going to be on social media again either. Like, I'm not saying that. But if if the demand is you have to be building a Twitter following um, in order to write for us, then I'm just going to write my journal, man. I'm just yeah. going to write for my newsletter subscribers. I'm just going to write for the people that I know and care about and have have cultivated uh, you know, a following over the last uh, you know, five, 10 years privately and quietly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because there's something about that work that is super important. I was talking to uh, a, a dear friend. Her name's Whitney. She runs a company down in your neck of the woods in Austin. Um, she was, used to be in, in a, a literary agent in faith-based spaces. And we were talking yesterday and we were sort of lamenting, uh, another fall of the mighty, you know, another, another pastor who's, who's gone, gone the way of, you know, sex, drugs, or rock and roll, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, um, we were talking about why this seems to be so prevalent. And I think the reason it seems to be so prevalent is because we have constructed, to your point, facades, uh, around who we are. We've created characters. We live into those characters, but the weight of our souls, uh, it becomes too heavy. We can't. We can't carry those characters around forever. You know the avatars that we present on Twitter. We can't be those people forever. And so ultimately and eventually, um, we succumb to the weight. And um, you know why would I subject myself to that if I don't have to? Yeah. Um, and maybe like you know to your point, you do it for a season for a book launch, or maybe you do it sporadically. You know, three, five, seven months a year, and you don't do it the rest. I don't know. Um, but if I didn't stop and try to figure out how to create a network that's not relying on that, I think I would kick myself uh-huh. uh, in the future. Yeah. And I think it's just 
continuing part of the problem that we didn't start, but we would um, be complicit in if we didn't say to publishers, look, you think I need to be on Instagram, but I don't. And here is an example. Here is exhibit A. Uh, Yeah, the ROI is just not worth it. I was reading a piece uh, that Cal Newport ironically linked to today of another writer who took a year off. He's he does more copywriting, so it's it's a little bit different than what you and I do, but it nonetheless, he's still a writer. And he talked about taking a break and he said uh his number one concern was is this just gonna plummet my business? Am I just like, you know, completely yeah. is this the fine a nail in the coffin? And he said, not only did uh my revenue increase 50%, um, my writing got a lot better. Like it yeah. We forget that not only is there this is there this weird um rat race idea of always being online so that you're interesting and in the forefront of people's minds, but it actually dilutes our quality of of output. Like we become yeah. crappier writers if we just yeah. focus so much on Instagram captions and the latest tweets. I mean, that's not good writing. Yeah, it's not. It's yeah. not. It, it, it also diminishes the quality of our reading. And I think yeah. that's the biggest thing that I've noticed in just a few weeks, um, or I guess a week, less than a week, right? Uh, as of the recording of the show. Um, and, and I started tapering sort of towards the end of the year. But one of the things that I've noticed is, um, one of the things that I had noticed was that, and I actually noticed this early on, probably the second or the third, I sent a text to our mutual friend, John Blaze. And I was like, man, I just read this thing and dadgum, if I don't want to tweet it and I can't, you know, <laughs> um, but, yeah. but I, I've noticed there is a, a way of reading in which we are reading to generate thought bubbles and opinions and yep. movement and build platform and those things. That is yeah. an innately shallow way of reading. Here's the thing. It's not only reading, it's living life. Like how many times have you been out there in the world and thought, oh, this would make a great photo to post on Instagram? Yeah, right. It's the same idea. So yeah, if you translate right. that to our reading, I mean, I have found myself like I'm reading a really good book and how often do I want to quote tweet it or take a photo? Yeah, and I mean, right. it's like, this is stupid. I'm just reading not because I want to impress people with what I'm reading. I just want to read for, to make me a better person. And here yeah. I am thinking about how can I share this? That's yeah. A hundred percent. And he, and here's where, um, you know, the rubber really meets the road. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. I, I've read for years and years and, was a little bit inspired late last year um, by again one of our mutual sort of writer influences to to try to capture a little bit more of uh, the gold from what I read and to and not in tweets you know because you can do that all day long but to actually figure out a, a sort of a data management way of like finding and keeping the best of what you read so that you can use it so you can grow as a human, not so that you can grow your platform, but so you can grow as a human. Right. And um, so I've really focused on that. And there's some ways I'm doing that. Maybe we can talk about that in a later episode later this year um, mm-hmm. as I sort of refine it. But but one of the things that I've noticed, and, and we'll talk about this in our in our closing, uh, you know, beauty segment, uh, first beauty segment of the year, in fact. Yeah. Um, I'm reading a book. It's not beautiful, but it's a terribly insightful. Hmm. And I'm finding that without the pressure to quote tweet all the pithy things that are important, and there's some really important things in this book, uh, I'm able to read for 
an hour and a half, two and a half hours in a block without even having the notion that I need to stop. You know, mm-hmm. I, there was a, uh, I couldn't sleep Saturday morning and I woke up at, I don't know, four thirty or five. I can't remember. And I read for two and a half hours and mm-hmm. it was beautiful. I didn't need to write anything down. Didn't need to tweet anything. I just sat with the work and ingested it. And, yeah. um, we've, we've lost that art. Yeah. Yeah, we have. I'm curious what you think about the why behind the Christian publishing industry. Why do you think there's this weird additional false lie that we need to create this persona online that we don't see in the general market? Do you think there's a reason that we can? Yeah, there is a reason. And I, I've actually had lots of conversations over the last, um, probably 11 years about it. And, um, and I won't name names, but I will give general, the general timeline and the general idea. Mm -hmm. So, um, back around the time when blogs were sort of first, the thing, first, a thing. And you will remember this. You will remember this very well. And you experienced some of this. There were um, ways that you could get published, right? And so Mm -hmm. if you were a big time pastor or priest, you could get published. If you had a lot of uh, a big church, you know, you had 10,000 people in your church, you could get published. If you were a traveling speaker, you could get published. If you had a really unique and weird story, you could get published. But there were far fewer faith books um, published of just, you know, housewives and dudes who are lawyers, you know, or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There was a particular publishing house that took a particular interest in a writer who had a fairly large online platform and no one really knew how large the platform was. And to the writer's credit, I don't think the story as the stories that I've been told go that she particularly knew how big her, her hmm. online presence uh, was, okay, but they knew they but they knew it was kind of sizable, and so they took a shot on this book, and uh, the book, lo and behold, was a runaway bestseller, and it was an amazing book, and and um, I've read the book. You've probably read the book. Probably many of our readers have read the book, uh, perhaps many many times. Um, and and as a result of this, um, you know, as the story goes, that I've been told by both writers, publishers, and agents. As a result of this, everyone sort of started trying to identify mm-hmm. what was the next big blogger book. You know, who mm-hmm. had the big platform? Who had the big blogging platform? Um, and of course, over time, uh, you know, as blogging waned, that moved over to, well, who has the big Twitter platform or who has the big, uh, you know, Facebook platform or YouTube platform or TikTok platform now or whatever. So, it, it was sort of chasing platform and publishers found out that, oh, you know, if if I can find somebody who has the baked in platform, then really yeah. from a marketing perspective, there's just not a whole lot that I have to do. Um, you know, now hear me say this, uh, the publicists that I had that worked on my books there and the marketers, they did a great job. Like there's no shot against them. Um, and there are many, many publishers out there who do an, a phenomenal job. Um, they don't just say, I'm going to rely on you only. They say, I'll, I'll rely on you for a large portion of this, but also here's what we are going to do and here's the plan. And those are mm-hmm. the best publishers. Those are the ones who do it right. But there are a lot who will not do that. There are a lot of publishers who rely solely on the platform of uh, the writer. Um, and that was something that, that 
that did exist like people say that never existed before well that's not really true that did exist hmm. i mean the big the big preachers the big conference speakers like they did have massive platforms right mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. philip yancey back in the day he had a massive platform he was writing sure. for the largest christian magazine he was invited all over to speak so he did have a social mm. slash media slash platform um but as people sort of transitioning, started transitioning sort of from those spaces to these online spaces, then it became the idea of, well, let's identify the person who, who can command the largest following on the online space. Now, here was the problem with that. The problem with that was uh, younger writers at the time, writers like me, like you, um, we were encouraged then not to go out and develop a life of character that would then get us invited yeah. to come speak at a large conference or something but instead right. to build an online audience and platform so that we would have the cachet to move and to sell a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what nobody knew at the time, I don't think, was that these platforms, and particularly when they switched and transitioned to more algorithmically uh, uh, moved uh, you know, platforms, um, so when Twitter switched to sort of an algorithm style and Facebook to two, Instagram and others, I don't think what they thought through was, oh, there's going to come a day when outrage and jealousy and anger and self-righteousness and self-indignation or indignation in general is going to be the thing that grabs attention. I don't mm-hmm. think they understood the science you know, that you talk about or that we talk about um, or that you see in The Social Dilemma or that you hear in Jaron Lanier's work. Um, the science that, hey, this is an attention economy and what gets the most attention are these negative soul components. I don't think they knew that. Mm -hmm. And so to encourage us to continue to operate in those spaces, now that we know what the science says, um, is in my mind, short-sighted, you you know, for the spiritual world. But I think that's how it started. I think it genuinely started as an effort to identify who could command eyeballs, yeah, um, and and yeah. who could command eyeballs was important. You know, has always been important. And, well, and, and you, yeah, it's helpful to remember that publisher publishing houses aren't in the business of making your dreams come true. They're in the business of selling books. And so, 100%. if they have a if they have a digital paper trail that shows, hey, this person has an audience, they can sell yeah. a book. It makes sense. Like it, it takes the risk out. Yeah, it takes the risk out. I think what's just so fascinating to me it's been fa- it's been on my mind for years now is why cba authors that's the christian faith-based you know s- space why there's just such a bigger reliance on that than the traditional publishing like i'm looking right now at the instagram feed of emily st john mandel i'm not sure i'm saying her last name right but she's one of my favorite novelists she wrote station 11 um in a sense written a few other novels fantastic writer great storyteller her her book, Station Eleven, did phenomenally well. It's an HBO mm-hmm. series now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. solid stuff. She's got a decent Instagram following, but nothing nothing that you would remotely consider relying a book de- deal on. And she just posts when she feels like it. And it's not even yeah. anything that terribly interesting. Like, I don't follow her, even though I love her writing, because it's not – I don't want it on my Instagram feed. And yet she can command amazing book deals. So that's what I just find really interesting. Well, and I think what we have to do as 
people who write in faith spaces and sometimes who don't. I mean, some of the stuff that I hope to publish is not in the faith space and some of it is in the faith space. And so I think what we have to do is we have to be just uh, dedicated, hellbent even on saying, you know what, we're going to participate in systems um, that aren't reliant on selective outrage and collective outrage and indignation and jealousy and anger. We're not going to do that. Like yeah. we're, we're not going to go to those spaces and perform and jump through the circles and, and uh, you know, the hoops or whatever uh, for those spaces. But instead we are going to support the people who are doing really good work that we really like. Um, and we're going to make sure that those people have a fighting shot to get published um, and to do good things without the necessity of mm-hmm. selling out to the algorithm. Like we have to do that. We have to make that a collective decision. And guess what? Like the rest of the reading world has already done that. They are leading yeah. the way in doing that. Yeah. Um, we choose not to do that because right. there's, there's, there's some holy war that we get to fight on Twitter that makes us feel good. Hmm. Um, and, and frankly, we, we've been doing that since forever, since the crusades. Yeah. Know? And, yeah. and we don't need to do that anymore. That's ridiculous. Instead, let's find the art that we love. Let's find the people that we love. Let's find the writing that we love and let's support them. And here are the ways you can support them. Okay. Yeah. One, buy a copy of every book they have ever written. Period. Right. Right. You may like their third book and not their first and fourth book. Buy all their books. You know, we we talk a lot about, or we've talked a lot last year about Heather King, um, Catholic writer. I think she's a phenomenal writer. Um, She was uh, an an attorney and an alcoholic. So you can imagine how much I love her for a variety of reasons. She has books I don't like, but guess what? I buy them all. Yeah. Because that's what it means to support a writer that you love. Like, make sure they can continue to do the work. Yep. Um, You know, sign up for their newsletters. I signed up for three newsletters today. Uh, people that just started them. I know they want to do better. I know they want to do different. I know they want to remove themselves from the social. So I did what? I signed up for their newsletter. Yeah. If you really like them, uh, sign up for their members only. I know you kind of laughed and made the joke about the <laughs> membership uh, side, but pay a little bit of cash every month to support 100%. them. Yeah. You know, I don't like, count that as a membership. I count that as a subscription more. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm all for, you know, we subscribe to... Netflix or the like, we subscribe to magazines. Why would we not subscribe to writers who are putting out yep. stuff that makes my life better? Agreed. Yeah. And then the last thing I would say, if you really want to support a writer who is 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 trying to forge a way, a different sort of way, one that is not um, reliant on social media, is forward along everything they write to everyone that you know mm-hmm. who might remotely be interested. Right. Let's like, let's use the power of connection to do those things. And, and, you know, from time to time, listen, if, if you have something um, that you have written and that you love and that you think is really good, send it to me, send it to Tish, let us read it. You know, like um, we, we may not love it. We might really love it. You never know. But, but if we're gonna start to build these networks of people who care about building a more weighty soul space for the written word, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's faith or non-faith, um, then we have to be committed to doing the work of putting ourselves out there in addition to 
um, you know, taking what is put out there for us and don't support the easy BS that floats around Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I think that last thing you said is so key because it's well and good to say, sure, I'll buy these books, but I'm also still going to spend a good chunk of my attention on Instagram. Actually pay attention to your own habits and do better. You know, don't just say, I mean, honest to goodness, um, unfollow people who are asking you to pull away from your own community in the name of spending more time online. And I mean, that sounds mean, but I don't mean it to be mean. I mean it to be caring because our souls are at stake and I'm not just being hyperbolic. I mean, these things matter. So, and it's not just that it's not just, it's not just the people who should be doing better. I mean, again, like when this is over, I may not go back to Twitter. I functionally haven't gone back to Facebook in forever. I hate it, but, um, but I might go back to Instagram, right? Because I use it for a very particular purpose per Cal Newport's book, digital minimalism. There's something that I use it for that I can't really do anywhere else. And it's not about marketing. It's not about getting my name known. It's a very particular medium for me, right? So I may go back, but you may not need to. But here's one thing that I do, and we've talked about. Here's one thing that I do on social media, um, particularly on Instagram. I mute people. Like, Mm -hmm. if somebody feels the need to be a a guru and you start to find yourself thinking, like, gosh, I really don't like this, or I don't trust this, or I don't like the way it makes makes me feel, or I always feel like they're marketing, like, mute them or unfollow them. Um, Muting is sometimes a better option because they don't necessarily know that you've muted them. But... But there are ways to go about, you know, curating your feeds so that one, you're not subject to the algorithms as much. And two, you don't feel the need to be selectively and collectively outraged all the time. Right. Um, so just mute, mute those accounts and, and, I th- and, and try to do as much as you can offline. And I think if it helps you feel better, muting does not equal you don't like them as a person. I, whenever you, you talked about doing that and I started up that habit, it it was so freeing because I realized this person is a friend. I just don't use Instagram the same way they do. And that's okay. So I'm going to mute them. Not because I don't ever want to grab coffee with them. In fact, I very much do. And so in order for me to still like them, I'm going to mute them uh, just because I want to use Instagram more like a museum and not like a mall. And so Um, a lot of people I started unfollowing, I, I just started the practice of if I am scrolling Instagram, which is very rare for me these days, and I come across someone in my feed, I'll just unfollow. But um, I love following artists on there. Yeah. It feels yeah. like walking through a museum more and more um, yeah. when you start just curating it to be the things you like. And yep. the same goes with Twitter, too. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's good. Well, I know we're going to be talking about this more over the coming months. This isn't like the last time you'll ever hear about Seth's challenge. So we'll probably do a what a check in every couple months for over the next yeah, six sure. months or ever, yeah, even I think that's every right. couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I think if if you want to follow along, I'm going to be writing, I mean, again, about supporting your local writers or your, your writers in general. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'm going to be writing about this over the next six months. I, I'm yeah. going to be go- doing uh, not weekly, but probably every two weeks I'll be releasing some stuff. And I think probably a lot of that will have to do with this very topic. Some of it will not, but the majority of it will, will sort of touch on it one way or another as an update. Yeah, no, it's great. And, you know, I think this it ties in beautifully with what we like to talk about here on this show, which is sacramentality. You know, it's about seeing the thing that's really there. And I yeah. think what you're doing in this pursuit is is really reorienting your 
compass so that you remember what's really there and what really matters in yeah. life. Yeah. Yes. That's good. And Twitter that's is not that. <laughs> Shockingly. Right. Yeah. Oddly. Uh, uh, okay. Well, it's a great transition to uh, the thing we love around here, which is beauty. Um, so Seth, what is something you are enjoying right now that is adding more beauty to your life? Well, first of all, let me say, I'm going to talk about this other one next week, but I, I, I never read Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. Can you believe that? No, I, I never can read it. it. Yeah. I okay. Get it. it just, yeah. it was a gap. I've started it. I'm about 115, give or take pages in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about it next week because yeah. boy, do I love it. But yeah. I got sidetracked because I started reading a book by a billionaire investor named Ray Dalio. Yes, oh. that's correct. I've heard of him. Yeah. He's a Bridgewater guy. Um, so some of you may have heard of him before. He's a business guy. Um, uh-huh. And he wrote a book called Principles for Navigating the Changing World Order. Huh. Um, and it is as dry as it sounds. <laughs> but Tish, man, is it an important book. It's mm-hmm. 511 pages pre-appendix. Wow. So it is not for the faint of heart. Um, but I think this might be one of the most important books I've read in the last five years. And I can't. Wow. I can't overstate that or under understate that i can't overstate that enough um Uh now i will give you some warnings one if you're not sort of a data wonk or an economics nerd it's it's hard like read five pages at a time if you pick this book up um but it's about late stage empires and rising Uh empires and where the convergence points lie between late stage empires and rising empires and his argument generally is that America is a late stage empire um, marked by decadence, i.e. social media, uh, yeah. and that China is a rising empire marked by things like increased productivity, uh, innovation, perhaps theft. He doesn't necessarily pull that out of the equation either. Um but uh, you know, more stable factors um, mm. than are happening right now in America, and it's kind of a call to to action around it. So, it's a fascinating book. I don't know that I agree with all of it. I don't agree with all of it, but it's a fascinating book, and I think it's it's definitely worth reading. Um, I am. It's kind of funny. This is not my thing. That's adding more beauty, but it's still related. Have you read? Because I am reading right now the uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. No. Um, okay. It's a good compendium to this. It's very heady as well. Um, it is written by Carl Truman. And mm. I will be honest, I initially was turned off by it because the forward is by a guy that I did not give enough credit for because I just listened to the Twitter algorithms, uh, the forwards by Rod Dreher. And wow. so my initial thought was like, oh, I'm not going to like that. And then I thought, wait, I am doing the very thing that I really don't like that social media does to us. And so I was like, I'm going to give this a listen. I'm listening to it and it's legit eye opening. And again, okay. I don't agree with everything he's saying, just like what you're saying, but man, is it good and important. So and, we can talk and that's about the that thing. I, I do think that's one of the things that we need to remember is listen, you don't have to agree with everything for it to bring, bring beauty into your life or goodness exactly. or truth or whatever. So I mean, yeah. that's a whole topic that I think we need to unpack here on this show. Uh, because I think that's the way out. I think the way out is yeah. to remember that we can listen and disagreement does not have to equal a full out war. Um, in Agreed. fact, it can't if we're going to stay a civilization. So Agreed. Yeah. So yeah. tell me, uh, Tish, what's one thing that you're reading, watching, listening to, or eating, or f- photographing, <laughs> or walking 
uh, or anything that is bringing more beauty, truth, or goodness to your life? I might have talked about this already in a former episode, but um, Jane McMorland Hunter runs or helps run a bookshop in London that I really enjoy going to whenever I'm in London. And she, and funnily enough, I got this book not knowing she also worked there. Um, I just liked it because of what it is. So she has a two volume set of collected poetry, not that she has written, but that she is curated. So the first- volume is called a nature poem for every day of the year. And this is volume two that I am now reading this year. It's called a nature poem for every night of the year. And so it is on my nightstand and I read it. I mean, I say I read it. It's the first week of the year, but um, so far every night I've been reading it and it is a fantastic way to end the day. So I highly recommend it. The first January 1st was William Morris then Sarah Coleridge, John Keats, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier, William Shakespeare was today's, tomorrow's Edna St. Vincent Millay. So it's well-known poets, but it's a really great curation because it's maybe the lesser-known sonnets or poems um, that you haven't heard of. And they're all related to nature. She's got some other ones about like friendship or whatnot, but volumes one and two are nature poems, and I love it. Um, mm. And it is just what I need to either start or end my day. Um, so I highly recommend it, especially, I mean, it's such an easy, quote, goal to accomplish in a year is just read a poem a day. Um, and because, I, and, you know, you and I have talked about poetry already a lot on yeah. the show, but it is, I think, also necessary for the continuing of our civilization. Um, and don't be, don't be turned off by the idea of poetry if you've found it boring in the past. Just start off easy and slow, and this is a great way to do it. So I recommend it for anyone who wants to add more beauty in their life because it's it's very accessible. Well, I am very excited about that because, uh, yeah. you know, as you know, I love poetry. Right. I do too. I do too. And I, I you know, I've been in the past that person who thinks it's boring, um, but it absolutely is not in my opinion anymore. And I think um, I think everyone should give it a shot. So. And that and that Tish from the past who thought it was boring was wrong. Flat out wrong, man. Um, there's definitely better poetry than others out there, but um, it's anything but boring, really and yep. truly. Honestly, it forces you to slow down, and that's what we need. It does, so. and that's a good thing. All right. Well, on that note, let's wrap this up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drinkwithafriend.com. If you like the show, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. The show is free for you to listen to, but it's not free for us to make. So at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can play a big part. Lots of you have already done that. A lot of you did it over the holidays, and we are super, super grateful. Thank you. It's very cool to see. So find the link to do that in the show notes of this episode or at a drinkwithafriend.com. And again, thanks. You can find me and how to connect with me uh, at my newsletter, especially at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you these days? Yeah, right now they need to find me over on Substack or at sethhaines.com. If you'll sign up at sethhaines.com, I'll move you over to the Substack list too. There you go. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, and we will be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.